Check, check, check. Okay, cool. All right, so we spent two weeks talking about the incommunicable aspects or um, attributes of God, which we defined as those attributes which we really can't take any part of or take any part in. And welcome, welcome. And so in, in a lot of ways, they lend themselves well to a lot of explanation because they need a lot of explanation. There's a lot of nuance and a lot of things that we have to uh, dig into to even grasp those. Today, we're moving into the communicable attributes of God. <clears throat> and I said last week that depending on which theology book you look at or which theology course you take, there could be a dozen, there could be two dozen, they could be split different ways, organized different ways. So what I've chosen to do is group them kind of like this. There's no way we're going to get through them all today. So I'm just going to, I'm going to focus in on what we can get to and see where we land on the rest of them. So somebody else, somebody uh, remind me. Okay, actually, let's just do it this way. So God manifests his attributes innately. We say that he's not made up of his attributes. His attributes are not things that he collects around him. They're not attitudes he adopts. We're saying that God is love. God is wrath. All of these attributes, even the immutable ones, are sorry, the uh, incommunicable attributes are what God is. We also said they're perfected in God because God's a perfect, infinite being. He is, he is perfect, and therefore the attributes that he manifests are perfect. And in a lot of cases, like goodness, truth, goodness, beauty, things like that, they are the objective standard of those things. What is good? God is good. So when it comes to us and our sense of these things, in a lot of ways, this is harder to prepare because we all kind of know what a lot of these are, are mean, like justice. But whereas God is the perfect manifestation of justice and righteousness, humanity is not. So how many of you have heard the term Imago Dei before? Okay, so can I get a definition? Well, I just gave you the definition. So a lot of people talk about what does it mean to be in the image of God? I don't know what the limits of that are, but partially it means that we carry some of these communicable attributes. But we do it in a limited and finite kind of way. Like, yeah. I'm sorry? Inconsistent. Inconsistent, yes. Yeah. Right, right. So some of these things, they're known to us. They're innate. I mean, even kids know justice, right? When they get wronged, they know that, they know that uh, something's not right. But we also have to acknowledge that because our world is marred by sin, because we're sinners, that those attributes are marred by sin and sometimes morphed into things like hate and the opposite of what those attributes should be. And finally, we look forward to a day when those attributes will be manifest again, unmarred by sin, but I will still say they will still be limited because there's no way that we will ever... Uh, have those attributes in the way that God has them. You guys remember the, the image behind this is the arch, the idea that God in his transcendence is perfection, eternity, infinity, whereas under the arch, in creation, which we will always be a part of creation, always be time-bound, even in the new heavens and new earth, um, we will have those attributes, but they will not be perfected.
I mean, they'll, let me put it a different way. They'll be perfected in us. They will not be the same as the way God manifests them. Any thoughts, questions? Okay, so let's start talking about a few of these. The first one is, well, we talked last week about knowledge. So we, this is communicated to us as knowledge. We can have knowledge of things, but we can't have pervasive knowledge. We can't know all things. So God has, is all-knowing. The term is omniscience. And a, a good working definition is that God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. That seems like a very nuanced definition because it includes a lot of bits. Let's unfold that. So he knows things, he knows all things actual. That's pretty easy to show from scripture. Matthew 6 8 says, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Uh, Matthew also says, Even the hairs on your head are numbered. Job says, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. He is instantly aware of everything uh, actual. He also knows all things possible, meaning that there's things that, in Scripture there's examples of things that could be the case, and God affirms they would be the case, if something had not happened. So here's, a, here's an example in First Samuel. This, I, I won't read through the whole thing, but the, the point is, Samuel asked the Lord, what's going to happen? Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord says, they will surrender you. And so David and his men arose and departed, and, and they went wherever they could go. And the point is, they escaped. So God was revealing knowledge of what would have happened if he had not escaped. There's another example. Um, Jesus says, Woe to you, word I can't pronounce. Woe to you, best theta. For if the mighty works done and you had been done in, in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Same with the bottom verse. Uh, so, uh, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained unto this day. So God has knowledge not only of everything that actually is the case, but everything that could possibly be the case. Okay, so this, he doesn't, he doesn't need to work to know anything. So what that means is that he instantly knows everything. If you asked him to count the number of sand grains on all the beaches in the ocean, he wouldn't have to go count anything. He could count them. We know that he's infinite. He could, but he just knows them. He knows all the stars. He says he knows their names. He's given them names. So he instantly has access to that, and that's why we say, uh, all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. And the last thing is that he knows himself completely, which is a kind of an amazing statement if you consider that God himself is infinite and transcendent, and yet he knows himself completely. That's infinite knowledge. 1 Corinthians 2 says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Okay, so just a, quick, a couple of quick questions from omniscience here. 
read this, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. What kind of, what, what do we take from that? What do we learn about God's knowledge and omniscience from, from this verse? Yes. Yes, yes. Better than we do. We, we're good at self-deception. But God knows our motivations and our hearts better than we, we can know ourselves. Genesis 20. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know, that, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. What do we, what do we learn from this? It's related to the first. Basically, he knows our intentions. And here we see he determines the number of the stars. He gives to them all of, to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. What's the one takeaway from that? Yeah. So, yeah, his knowledge, yeah, we won't understand him completely, ever. We'll never run out of things to learn about him. But also we learn that his knowledge of creation is infinite. That goes back to that, that um, bullet point earlier about he knows all things instantly and simply. What do we observe from this? And the Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. He knows the future, yes. And that goes back to his eternality. We talked in the incommunicable attributes how God sees past, present, and future as ever-present. He's, he's got instant access to the past, present, and future and knows what's going to happen because he's decreed it. We talked about his immutable decrees and his will. Okay, I have a question for you guys. What about things like this, where it says that God will not remember your sins? Say that again, please. Okay. Okay, any, any other thoughts? Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the is, the thing here is not that he's incapable of remembering or somehow blots that out of his memory. I mean, he's instantly aware of everything. But the meaning of this is that he will not let our sin play any part in how he relates to us going forward. So that's a good thing for us. Any questions, comments on that? Let's talk about omnipotence. So, again, we talked about this being communicable in the sense that we can be powerful, we can do things, we have capabilities, but not in the sense that God does. God is all-powerful, and he's able to do his holy will. First Samuel says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillar of the earth, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. 
So there's a pretty strong uh, statement in favor of God's all-powerful, uh, all-powerfulness. So a couple of other verses. With, all, with God, all things are possible. Nothing will be impossible. He does what he pleases, and nothing's too hard for him. So one other fine point on this is that he, um, he's capable of doing things that he has chosen not to actually do. You know, there's, there's things he could do that obviously that, that he has not, he's not done. Matthew 3, 9 says, Do not presume to say for yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Take that pretty literally. God can do a lot of things that he's chosen not to do because he's chosen to do this particular thing. Okay, question. Are there things that God can't do? Yeah. Care to share? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. Good, good, yeah. Can't lie. Can't lie. I hear a theme here. Any others? Can't, can't violate his other attributes. Hebrews 6.18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for the refuge might have stronger encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That our hope is based on the fact that God can't lie. So he cannot go against his character, which... A couple of weeks ago, we said his character is one of the things that's immutable about him. He, his character won't change. Therefore, we can have confidence that at some point in the future, what he said was true will no longer be true. He can, and that's why I say he can only do his holy will because his holy will is consistent with his character. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm sa- I, I, I mean to say that he can't violate his holy will because he would fail to be God at that point because it's his, his uh, attributes are immutable. Does that make sense? So which way would you answer the question? I'd say he cannot lie. I mean, the verse says impossible for God to lie. So, it's not that he's chosen not to lie. Okay. It's that he cannot lie. So you're- Correct. Yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? Yes. I think some of that this discussion is, is wrapped up in man's attempt to understand God and mm-hmm. this, the scope of revelation. And uh, because there's no there's no debate in the Godhead over things like that. It's just the character is right. Yeah, that question in particular is a silly question, yeah, yeah. But, right. And his ways are so far beyond ours. How he functions in the Godhead is beyond our ability. It's not revealed. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think, so there's a slight difference. The paradox question, I think, is what you're, you're talking about. The could he build a rock so big he couldn't move it? That's sort of a paradox, and that's a silly question to spend time on. The issue you were bringing up is legitimate for clarifying understanding. I think, yes, yeah. Yeah, you can't go against his character. Right. You said that's the reason that he doesn't like, because he's basically chosen not to. Well, I, th I think it's, it's, I don't know if I understand the distinction. He will not lie, he cannot lie, because it, his character is immutable. I'd say if he if he lied or if he chose to lie or if, if he could lie, then his character's mutable and therefore yeah. that's a that's a change in who God is fundamentally. I think that the distinction is that we we always choose things. We choose to do this. We choose to do that. I don't believe that that God, I don't believe God does that. He does not right. choose. He does not weigh things and then choose to do this or that regardless of whether it's mm -hmm. how he manages his creation or how he, uh, how he, how it reflects his manifestation yeah. of his character. That right, the manifestation of the world versus character. It's not, it's not a debate that happens. Right, in, within the Trinity, he has a holy will, right? And there's, they're, they're, they probably didn't sit around deciding whether to, uh, you know, to A or B. Yeah, and so we talked about that uh, a week or two ago when we were showing that arch. Above that arch, there is no time. He's completely outside of time. He's transcendent over time, which means he sees every moment actually as now. He can access the past, present, and the future as if it's now. Under the arch in creation, time-bound creation, that's where we're limited. Yes, we have a question in the back. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt.
Yeah, so that goes back to what we talked about with his attributes being not somehow gathered together in him, but, but he is the manifestation of those attributes. Truth, goodness, beauty, love, righteousness, those things are who he is, and he cannot deny that character. <clears throat> okay. I agree. I agree. Um, one more quick thing uh, regarding what you said, ma'am. Um, I like what you said about <clears throat> God is, I don't remember which attribute you used, but you said Jesus is also. So what, what one thing we do affirm is that God is not, his attributes are not split amongst the Trinity. God is, all members of the Trinity are wrathful, are righteous, are justice, are goodness, are love. Okay, uh, let's shift to uh, a little bit of discussion of sovereignty, and this is probably going to generate a lot more discussion. Um, sovereignty here I'm defining as God's right and ability to bring about all things according to his desire. So we know that's a pretty basic definition of a ruler. The kings on earth, Nebuchadnezzar was sovereign over Babylon and most of the known world at a time, as Caesar was sovereign. We have human levels of sovereignty, but God level, uh, God's sovereignty is absolute. So here's the question on the table. How much sovereignty does God actually exercise? And the reason I bring this up is I'd like to just get this out there and have the conversation, is there are some people who believe that he exercises sovereignty in certain areas to sort of nudge history along. It's sort of a, the boat will go from New York to London, but what happens on the boat, I'm not going to try to exercise sovereignty over. That's a free will argument or whatever. On the other end of the spectrum is, God is sovereign over every single thing. So that's kind of what we're, I'm going to argue for the latter. If you disagree, we can talk later. And this is basically, I think, I'm trying to accurately represent traditional Reformed theology in this regard. Here are just a series of verses that show the ways in which God is sovereign over seemingly insignificant and minor details. He feeds the birds, he provides flowers, sustains the life of even the smallest creatures. He says the hairs on your head are numbered. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So, I would like to argue that God is absolutely sovereign over all the details and actually exercises that sovereignty. So when we talked about his immutability a couple of weeks ago, we talked about his, uh, he's immutable in three ways. His character, he can't change, his character will never change. His counsel will never change, which is his, his, I'm sorry, his covenants will never change. And the last one was his counsels or his decrees will never change. So 
what we say, what the traditional Reformation understanding of that is, is that every single thing that happens is playing out God's will in his eternal transcendence, his will of decree. So let's ask this question. Does this make God the author of sin and the direct cause of evil acts? Because we know bad things happen. Thoughts? Okay. God's ways are hard. What's that? I'm a hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent sovereignty. Yeah. My argument, by the way, is not that you have to be a hundred percent sovereignty to be saved, but I think from the standpoint of traditional Reformation teaching, the way I'm going to take this, I'm going to go with that. Yes. Um, so I'm trying to, uh, you put way more thought into my question than I did. Generally, the, the, uh, the issue that comes up is, well, if God is sovereign over every single thing, doesn't that make all the evil things his fault? So let me ask this question. What, is, what was the, and y'all may have discussed this, so pardon me for being a late bloomer here, but, but what was the purpose of God's creation? From beginning to end, what was the very purpose of God's creation? the glory of God through the grace of Jesus Christ for some more right. elaborate, eloquent... The chief end of man kind of the stuff, right? Yeah. And a necessary component of that was sin. Without sin, there can be no glory through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There can be none without sin. And so, um, you know, I, I mean... That's, yeah, the, the, that whole, the whole issue there is is I haven't spent a whole lot of time in that area. I think um, that's a very complicated topic. Did God will the fall? I think it's kind of, if you believe in strong sovereignty, I don't know. I think you kind of have to go there. But for me, where I struggle is when I try to explain to myself what that means. Because I'm think, I think about the answer to that question, did God create sin? Is he directly responsible for everything? Yes. Well, how does that relate to sin? And, and I have to take a step back and mm -hmm. trust the Lord because I know from Scripture, I think I know, what his purpose of the entire creation was, was that final act when, when the glory of God through his grace would be put on display. Yeah. And so everything that happens through there, the good, the bad. Is all, everything good and bad is all in the chief end of all, glorifying God. Right. Well, let's, we're going to dive a little farther into this and explore something, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, yes, Sharon? Well, I'm, I'm going to attempt to, to provide at least some context and tools to try to make sense of it. And, and I'll just tell you going in, if anyone says they've got this figured out, I, I wouldn't trust them. I, I don't have it figured out. Yes.
Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and this gets down to this issue of what is the will of God. And I think we could probably have a whole other unit of, of theology on the will of God, because we're talking right now about his will of decree, his what he has determined is going to happen. There's the whole other will of that's revealed in Scripture, which is his revealed moral will, which is follow Jesus. Um, but this is not something that we get to know ahead of time. We said earlier that if you want to know what God's decree is for Sunday afternoon, the only way to know that is to live through Sunday afternoon and see what happens. That's what his will of decree is. Yes, Stuart? I think James answered kind of the second question there, the direct cause of evil acts. In James 1, it says, starting with verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, yeah. you know, okay. Yeah. Sorry. No, 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 that's good. I love it when that kind of thing happens. That's good. Because what it says is that we're all, we're all looking at the same scripture. And, and if we're immersed in the scripture, these verses come to mind. And this is perfect because the scripture explicitly forbids us to accuse God of evil or being the author of sin. First John also says, This is the message you have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him no, is no darkness at all. So sin is, God has no part in sin. So this comes down to this area of how can God be sovereign and I still be... Actually, I wish I'd reworded this. I wish I'd said, how can God be sovereign over everything and I still be... And, and I... And I let's talk about sovereignty and responsibility. So if, if sin is the responsibility... If sin is the... If, if, if whatever sin happens is on our account not God's. How does that work? The question is, the answer is, I don't know how it works, but we're going to, talk, we're going to look at a few uh, scriptures here and a couple of confessional statements. The first thing I'd say about freedom is that we're not really free to do anything. I mean, by anything, I mean I can't fly home from here because I don't have the capability. You're free to do what you're capable of doing, so I would say that we, as humanity, have been gifted as being free moral agents in the, in, the, in the sense that we can make choices under the arch. And again, I keep going back, sorry, I keep going back to that illustration. In God's will of decree, all this is figured out. In his creation, in time-bound creation, in his eminence, we have authentic free moral choice on a number of things. Now, there are some things we can't choose to do. For instance, when we talk about salvation, this is a Reformed church, we, and I'm going to show you a little bit of our doctrinal statement here in a minute, but what we are saying is that we in our sin cannot choose God. It's just outside of our capability. So God first has to regenerate us, and then that, that drawing is irresistible. That's what our little banners up here are talking about. 
So let's talk about this issue of how, um, how confessionally we have explained how this works. This is, a, this is a doctrine called compatibilism. Sorry, this is sort of advanced class, but I figure it's probably edifying. We'll, we'll see where it goes. Compatibilism is the idea that God's sovereignty, and by the way, I'm not making this up. This is straight out of all the Reformed theology books, um, Westminster Confession we're going to look at here in a second. God's sovereignty and our free agency are compatible, and both are affirmed in Scripture. Acts 2.23 says, this Jesus, this is uh, Peter speaking after the, after the resurrection, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. How does that work? So what I've done is I've color-coded in red the divine decree part of it. God has a definite and foreknowledge. Uh, the definite plan, plan is the key word there. It was God's plan that Jesus go to the cross. In the stuff in blue is who's held responsible for it. This is people doing what they wanted to do. People wanted, the, the uh, Pharisees wanted Jesus crucified. Acts 4, 27 through 28 says, For truly in this city there, is, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It is just right there in Scripture. This was God's plan. And the people that were rallying to put Jesus to death are responsible for their sinful desires to do so, but in the process were fulfilling God's plan. Okay, so there's, there's, a lot, there's going to be a lot here. Um, we'll, we'll go through it and see uh, what we can make of it here. So the, and this is, by the way, not part of this church's doctrinal statement. I'm showing it because almost all Reformation-era theologies look to this as kind of a good Reformed um, understanding of God's eternal decree and how it works with our responsibility. Before I read, I need a drink. Okay, in red, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. So that's the confessional statement with scriptures backing it up that God is, has a decree and a plan for all of history. Yet, so in the big yet in the middle, as thereby neither God is the author of sin, there's James again, he's not the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. What does that mean? That means that as creatures we have wills, we have things we want to do, and the fact that he's saying it's not, it's not offering violence to that will, in other words, it's compatible, compatibilism. What, God is one, what God's plan is, is compatible with what we're, what we are, he uses what we want to do as part of his plan. Nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. That's very complicated, but that basically means that 
God often uses second causes to accomplish his will. Yes? What do you mean by second cause? We're actually going to get into that. Yes. Okay. Although, and this is another section of, of the confession, it says, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, there's acknowledging transcendence, the first cause, God is the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. There's his incommunicable attribute of immutability of his counsel. Yet, by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes. And then this is the answer to your question. What are second causes? Either necessarily, freely, or contingently. And then there's a whole bunch. We'll look at a verse for each of those to explain what those mean. Necessarily means the mechanisms of the cosmos. So I say cosmos instead of universe because I like it. Cosmos means order in a way that universe does not imply. So God is the creator of the cosmos. He set up mechanisms. Genesis 8.22 says, while the earth, this is one of the proof texts used in the confession, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What, what this is saying is that he set up laws in his creation. If I drop a rock, it's going to fall necessarily because that's the way he set things up. Does that mean that God is the author of that? Is, has he decreed that that rock is going to drop? Yes. The means by which it does so is the mechanisms of the universe. That's one of the ways his will of decree is accomplished. The second one is freely. His will is accomplished by things happening freely. So the freely actually means chance events. And I put chance in quotes because I'm required to. This is, uh, we, we do affirm God's sovereignty over all things. And so we tend to say there's no such thing as chance. But things that are kind of freak accidents um, are also part of him fulfilling his will. First Kings 22:34 says, "But a certain man drew his bow at random, at random, it says, and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, "Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded." So the man didn't intend to hurt the king. It was, is it God's will that the king had been struck? Yes. But God was not the, the person who drew the bow and did it on purpose. This was a careless act on the part of a creature. And finally, and this is probably the most important one for our purposes, contingently, this is how God deals with us, creatures that have wills. Isaiah says, this is one of the proof texts, against a godless nation I send him, and against the wrath of the people of my wrath I command him. This is God sending people against Israel. Against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend and in his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. 
So what this is saying is that, again, God's will is accomplished through people making the choices that they can make. And a lot of those times those choices are sinful, driven by sin. And God ends up accomplishing his will through that. So did we get anywhere close to answering your question about second causes? It's, it's, it's complicated. And I don't know that we're going to come to a, a comprehensive understanding here in this, this hour, but the point is that above the arch, God has everything planned out. How he makes that work out is people doing what they want to do within their capabilities. So finally, I just want to also affirm that God in his ordinary providence makes use of means. That's what we're talking about, these means freely, contingently, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. This is miracles. This is, I drop the rock and it doesn't fall to the ground. This is uh, God operating outside of the normal means that he uses. So before we move on, is there any questions, comments, objections? Yes. I think that fits right into what we're saying, though, if you think about it. The, God does know the moment of our death. Oh, I think my, my yeah. thought was, if we, if we go to the end, God has chosen the end, but we'll No, actually, my, so my argument is that you choosing, or not you, let's check, Joe... Some, somebody else, choosing to live recklessly and shorten their lifespan is, is on them, but God did not just say, this is the day, get there however you can. He was also behind every moment of the, of the process. Yes, Dan? Right. Right. You, you, first of all, you don't. And second of all, it goes back to this idea of decree, which is you can't know what God's will or decree was until it happens. So the, the main argument we have for his will or decree is what the Bible has to tell us about it. Comments? Yes?
very, very good, yeah. So actually, that leads us right into this. So I think in the answer to your question is, if, you, if you're trying to figure out how that relates at a mechanical level, I don't know, I don't know anybody who does, but the Bible affirms both is true. God's got the hair on your head numbered. He knows the day of your death. And yet, something, you know, you could, I'm not even going to speculate, but people do things that can be self-destructive or not as part of their own free agency. So this is straight out of our confession of faith. And this has to do with uh, uh, effectual calling, and the second called effectual calling. We believe that election is the eternal purpose of God. There's the decree language according to which he graciously regenerates, sanctifies, and saves sinners. That being, and here's the nuance, that being perfectly consistent with the free agency of man. In other words, it comprehends all the means in connection with the end. In other words, God doesn't just zap people to salvation. The way we experience it under the arch is the gospel. That's why we preach the gospel. God's God's chosen that means as his ordained means of people coming to faith. That's why we can't be passive about the gospel or really be passive about anything in life. There's work to do, and all the places where Jesus talks about the laborers, um, it's important because it's authentic and it's real. That is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable, there's immutability again, that it utterly excludes boasting. And the point of this, of course, is that we didn't contribute anything to our salvation. God didn't look through time and see that we were going to be good enough or choose him or be virtuous in that regard. Instead, for reasons of his own, he chose us and but he didn't just zap us one day. There is justification. There's the idea that we're regenerated, but that's part of a process. And part of that process involves the gospel message. And, you know, us thinking, you know, we have to, we have to comprehend it. Yes? So, but, but there is a, there's a transition from natural man to, to someone who can receive the gospel. And, and, and I, the way I think of it is that that is a zap. Right. So you're speaking of regeneration, that moment of regeneration. Yes, and I guess my point is, I agree with the zap in regeneration at that point, but that is part of a process that starts with the gospel message. Yeah, that does, regeneration doesn't say regeneration enables an, an, an inevitable outcome. Right. And, and man's faith is, is the trigger. Right. So that whole, or that hopefully... We should cover that in this theology class, too, the order of salvation, the way things traditionally have been understood to work, the order of regeneration and coming to faith and all that. But, I, you know, it's not, it's not today anyway. Um, but you're absolutely right. I think, I think there's, there's like seven or eight steps to this academically. Regeneration is one of them. Coming to effectual calling is one of those. And, uh, but my point is that that's not done outside of people doing stuff. His second causes. We are almost at our time. So, I don't know what to say about these in the last few minutes. Uh, in, in some cases, I'll simply leave it at this. 
and we may have to circle back around at some point. I'm not teaching next week, I'm out of town, but maybe Fred will cover it or I'll come back and do the rest of these. But um, in a lot of these cases, things that are good, like our definition of good, true, beautiful, let me just make this point real quick. Um, the virtues that we were traditionally as Christians were taught to recognize, and this Stephen's going to go, I know this, truth, goodness, and beauty were, what, what do we call those in, in, in classical education, for instance? They're just the, the they are the three transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. Those are, according to Scripture, objective things. Goodness is objective. Why? Because God is good, and God is the objective standard for goodness. Truth is objective, because God is true. And beauty is objective, because God is beautiful. And God actually says things are beautiful. I don't have my example with me, but there are things that he says that are done for beauty. So if God thinks things are beautiful, what business do we as a culture have seeing that beauty is in the eye of the beholder? Unless that beholder is just God. So I think that's one thing. If you look at the, the way the culture has moved, the first thing that fell was objective beauty. Suddenly art was what you make of it. The second thing that fell was goodness. What's really good? What's really evil? And the final thing that's on trial is truth. In that order, beauty, goodness, and truth are under assault. But one of the things we learn from God's communicable attributes is that all of those are objective and perfected in God. So I think that, let me, let me ask if there's any final comments before we close. Was this, too, was this confusing or was this? Okay, good. All righty. Um, George, would you pray first and close today? Amen. Thank you all.